When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Craig Conant. I'm selling a little weed, little mushrooms, little fireworks, you know. <laughs> Just the basics. That and more, but before that, a song you are going to want to learn to sing along to. you bought the Risk book yet? If you have, buy more for friends. There are all new versions of classic stories and six never heard before elsewhere. There's a bunch of famous people in it. Say what? You and it with all the offers. The Risk book has stories that are funny and scary and lovely and totally fucked up. Perfect gift to give to friends. And it's getting all kinds of raves. On audiobook, ebook, and paperback. Where books are sold or theriskbook.com. Buy the risk book. I mean, is that an earworm or what? Don't forget to get the book, get copies for your friends, call your indie bookstores, make sure they have it, call your libraries, make sure they have it. Be sure to review the book on Amazon, and don't forget it's available in paperback, ebook, or audiobook. Now, here's the show. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Polar Bear behind me now. Not to be confused with Groller Bear, which is the name of a new sort of animal that is coming about because polar bears and grizzlies are mating because of climate change. There's a new report out from the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change that says by 2030, extreme drought, wildfires, floods, and food shortages for hundreds of millions of people will be a reality. And the political party that has strong-armed its way into running our entire government now is rolling back all regulations and protections to prepare for that. 
I'm not gonna lie. I am completely. I, I, I've, I've never been, I think, so outraged as I have been about the completely unjust and illegitimate forcing into the Supreme Court a, a man who is clearly unfit to be there. Christine Blasey Ford mentioned in her testimony how indelible the laughter is in her memory from the traumatic experience she had at the hands of Brett Kavanaugh. And so the final story on this week's episode reminded me of that. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. Go to IWillVote.com. Make sure you're registered. Make sure all your friends are registered. Look up Indivisible.org or SwingLeft.org or MoveOn.org. There are so many ways that between now and November 6th, you can get involved, make sure you are registered, friends are registered, and make sure people are getting to the polls. Lots of ways to volunteer. And, you know, any free days you have between now and November 6th, jump on it. We're calling this week's episode Fright, because this October there's so very much to be frightened about. It's also the beginning of our 10th year of doing this. Risk started on October 6th of 2009, so here's to our 10th season. I want to give a little shout-out here to our latest Patreon patron. We always give a shout-out if someone donates $25 or more per month. And so thank you so very much to Anthony Scalarud. Or Scalarud. I hope I'm not butchering that name. If you don't know, there are so many bonus stories on our Patreon at patreon.com slash risk. Uh, with me too, so in the spotlight lately, the, uh, one of our latest stories that we've uploaded there on the Patreon is one of those. It's incredibly essential to us to get support from our fans just in order to keep this machine running. I'm not kidding about that. We need your help. Uh, and there's all sorts of other sort of, you know, behind the scenes check-ins, videos, photos, uh, people talking what, back and forth to one another there on Patreon. So it's a great way to help out and become a part of our community. Okay, in a little bit, we're going to hear a remarkable story that Susan Liu shared in Seattle. Susan has an extraordinary one-person show called 140 Pounds. You can find out more about that at susanliu.me. That's L-I-E-U dot me. But before we get to Susan, something much lighter, a story by Craig Conant. Craig is a hilarious stand-up comic based in Los Angeles, which is where he told this story at our monthly show at the Bootleg Theater there. Here he is now with a story we call The Raid. Yeah. I'm going to tell you a, a stope. A stope. Jesus Christ. Yep, a story that helped get me sober, despite my speech. 
and my appearance. I was uh, raided by the LA Impact Task Force. Thanks, man. The police, when I lived in Culver City, and I was asleep, and uh, I'm blind as a bat, I wear contacts and glasses, and I just, I just hear, you know, battering, I didn't know what it was, but it was battering rams breaking down the gate to my place. And I just hear noises, and uh, I just hear hands in the air. But I think it's my roommate playing a prank on me, you know? <laughs> so I'm reaching for my glasses, and I just hear hands in the air, motherfucker. And I'm like, who is this, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and I put them on, and it, and it comes into focus. And I'm like, oh shit, this is real, you know? Like, this isn't a prank. And uh, it was just like in the movies, like I had windows. Of course I had windows, but the, the, <laughs> <laughs> the SWAT team fills up the first window and I'm like, ah, and then it fills up the next one. I'm like, oh shit. Then it fills up the third window right behind me. And, and then I'm just like this in my, in my fucking underwear, my chonies, you know? And, I, and, and uh, now my hands are in the air. And then I'm walking to the door and I have a deadbolt on it because I'm, I'm selling a little weed, little mushrooms, little fireworks, you know. <laughs> Just the basics. Because <laughs> I know how to live, you know. And I undo the lock, I unlatch the deadbolt, and I open the door, and there's a Culver City cop pointing a shotgun at my heart. And I go, Chris? And he goes, Craig? It's my buddy Chris I probably shouldn't have said his whole name, you know? But I played Little League with this guy. I went to high school with this guy. I've known this guy my whole fucking life. And this guy, he's pointing the gun on my chest, you know? And I just see my friend and I go, help me! <laughs> and then he goes, I will. And then he handcuffs me, that bastard, you know? But he, he put him on loose. He just put him on loose. He did. I've been cuffed up three times prior, you know, because I know how to live, you know. And they crank those bitches on, dude. They give you a little nerve damage. You can't even stock apples good the next day at Trader Joe's, you know. I work at Trader Joe's. And uh, all I'm thinking of, like, how how can I be getting raided right now? Like, I'm a criminal, but I'm a little baby criminal, you know? <laughs> Just fireworks, ounce of weed, a little quarter of mushrooms, you know, no, nobody trying to hurt anybody over here. And I'm like, how are they raiding me? And then the only thing I could think is I had uh, just smoked meth for the first time. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I was at Trader Joe's on lunch break with this new guy. He's a weirdo, you know? And I go, you want to smoke a bowl? And I meant weed. And I pull out my pipe, you know, and smoke some weed. And he pulls out his pipe, and it was meth. And I was like, what the fuck? You know? And then he's like, want to hit it? And I was like, all right. That's how I know I'm weak, you know? You're weak. 27 years old, and you hit the pookie for the first time on your lunch break at Trader Joe's, you know? 
I was stocking some bananas after that though, you know? <laughs> so that's all I could think. I was like, okay, maybe it's that, that guy, you know, he's bad news. I'm hippie news. They got, they're, you know, like, this is impossible. So then I'm talking to Chris and uh, I just see my friend and in come all the other cops and it's a SWAT team, you know, there's helicopters, there's, it's, there's, I don't even know, 30, 40 cops. And the other cop, he's an asshole, he's got the drug sniffing dog, he's like, you got anything hippie? And I'm like, well, yeah, of course, you know. <laughs> Look at me, dude. <laughs> and he goes in there and they, they ransack my room and then, uh, I'm looking at Chris and I just see my buddy. I'm like, hey dude, I got weed in there. I got mushrooms in there. And he's like, bro, stop telling me this, you know? And then I'm still panicking. I'm like, dude, I got fireworks in there. I'm on probation for fireworks from the 4th July incident. And he's like, you mean the time you threw the firecrackers at cops on horses in Hermosa Beach and it made the newspaper? And I was like, yeah, that one. <laughs> uh, that's another story for another time. And, uh, and he's like, bro, stop fucking telling me this, you know? And I, I, I'm just nervous. And then they take me out to the alley and they're all questioning me. And I'm just handcuffed in my underwear in an alley surrounded by a SWAT team and I'm just nervous and I just fart. <laughs> I just farted <laughs> and I just was scared. And I was like, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> and they're looking at me like, is this guy serious? Is this, fuck, is this guy special? He's farting on us, raiding his house. And they, they weren't actually there for me. I lived in a back house. I lived behind this guy, King Mike. He was in the front house. He was the real criminal. He was a two striker. They're trying to strike him out and send him to prison for life. I guess he was selling meth and guns and stuff. You know, he's a good neighbor, you know? And uh, I know his name was King Mike because I used to steal his Wi-Fi and that was his name on the Wi-Fi. <laughs> King Mike, password thug, one, two, three, you know? <laughs> He's a nice guy. <laughs> he had good weed too. But he's a, he's a good, good criminal. I mean a bad criminal, but like good at his job, criminal, you know? Because he had, uh, he's a plumber, had two trucks and a business, but never touched a toilet kind of criminal, you know? It was all a front. And uh, they were there for him. And uh, like I said, he was good. They didn't get him and they couldn't take me in. They couldn't take, you know, hippie boy, hippie man for fucking weed and mushies. That'd be the laughing stock. What, what'd you get this guy for? He farted on us. <laughs> it was assault. You should have been there. It was, it was brutal. So uh, the cops left empty handed. They didn't strike King Mike out. They didn't get me for my, my stuff. And then uh, all I kept thinking when I was in handcuffs I was like, well, I can't call my mom because that would be the fourth time she bailed me out of jail. <laughs> what kind of man would I be? Three times I get it, four times. I'll take the time, you know? <laughs> and I just kept thinking, like, I can't go to jail. I paid $450 for UCB improv classes. 
and I gotta be there later because they're gonna teach me how to be funny, you know, like, you, you guys can't, you can't take me to jail. I paid good money for that. And then uh, later, I ran into Chris. He was just, you know, doing cop shit, patrolling the streets. And I ran into him, and uh, I was like, oh, man. <laughs> Remember when you raided me and uh, almost killed me? He's like, yeah. <laughs> and uh, he said the precinct talked about me for like a month straight. They're like, Remember that special hippie that farted on us? <laughs> so when something like this happens to you, it inspires you to get, to get sober. And, uh, you know, three arrests and a raid, you get sober. And I, and I, I finally got sober. It just took... Uh, about two more years, and uh, I, and I tried to hook up with my cousin in front of my family on my birthday. Somebody clapped. <laughs> what are you doing? And uh, anyways, I'm sober now. Thank you. Well, more bodily functions in the news this morning. The next time you pass gas, make sure no police are around. A man in West Virginia faces assault charges after police say he passed gas and abandoned the officer. I mean, don't laugh. Oh. <laughs> after the man was already arrested for DUI, according to police reports of St. Cruz, I can't even get through this. He passed the gas so loudly the officer said it was, quote, very odorous and created... <laughs> it created contact of an insulting or provoking nature. Mr. Anchorman. See, that wasn't even right. That was, to put that story in there was wrong. That was wrong, man. I didn't see it when I was looking through the script. He stuck that in there. Very odorous. There you go. I lost my mom when I was 11. I don't have many memories about my mom, but I know that my entire family calls her the hero. She grew up in the Mekong Delta in Vietnam in this small province called Sauk Chang. It's known for its fermented fish noodle soup. We call it Bung Nuk Leo. To me, when I smell it with the shrimp and the pork and the banana flower and the citrus, I think it smells like home. But maybe most of you, when you smell it, you might think it smells like compost rot. When the bin gets too full, it's super funky. But that's what we're known for. And when my mom was 16 and she was growing up, she had to drop out of high school. She was the best student in her class. She was in ninth grade. And she had to support her 11 brothers and sisters. So she went out into the village She'd walk down this dirt road every day, and um, she'd sell lotto tickets. She started selling lotto tickets to people, and she started making money. And then she found out that if she started having other people sell lotto tickets for her, she'd make more money. 
And then she started having dreams, and she had animals. A pig was one, a, a cow was two, a water buffalo was three. And then she started figuring out what the numbers were and started buying lotto tickets, and then she started winning. And she won several times. And that's how she saved up enough money to save up for six one-ounce gold bars. And that was enough money to pay for four tickets out of Vietnam. Four tickets to try to get on a boat and get to a Malaysian refugee camp. This was after the fall of Vietnam, and everyone was frightened for their lives every day. They didn't know what was going to happen the next day to them. So she had enough money. She, my dad, my two brothers, they were planning an escape. But it wasn't an easy escape. It was risky. Because if any of the communists spotted them or anybody else trying to leave the docks that night, you get thrown into a labor camp, you get thrown into prison, or maybe you just disappear. So that was obstacle number one. That night, she knew it was the night to go, so each parent took a son in their hands and they walked quickly to the docks. And when they got there, the communist lighthouse, it lit up. And all of a sudden, all the passengers had to run back and just run back into the jungle and run as fast as they could. And she started running and she was holding my four-year-old brother hard against her belly and her shoes started flying off, but she kept running into the darkness. She didn't know where she was going. And she ran into a thorny patch and every step she took, more and more thorns went into her body and then her foot became a bloody mess. And then she came back to my grandma's house and you could see all these bloody footprints coming through the house. And she'd lie down in the hammock. And my grandma would cry saying, this is the last time you're going to do this. It's not worth it. And you're going to die out there, so stop doing this. And my grandma would take this needle and just take all the thorns out of her foot, take all the thorns out of her foot and wipe all the blood off her feet and say, stop doing this. And my mom did it again and again and again. And on the sixth time, they finally just made it onto a boat. And the boat made it past the communists. And after three days at sea, they made it to a Malaysian refugee camp. My sister was born in that camp. And after two years, we made it to America. And I was born in 85. When we were in America, it was all about the family business. Susan's Nails, named after me. My sister's so pissed about it to this day. <laughs> in the family, everyone had a part to play. And I remember I was four years old, and when all the customers you know, were backed up and people aren't starting at the, the right appointment time, she'd look over at me and she'd nod. And I knew I gotta turn on the charm. And so I'd go up to the customers that were waiting and be like, oh, hi, Daddy. How's your dog? Yeah, you, your hair looks nice. Yeah, and I'd be like taking off her nail polish, really engaged, scheduling the next appointment. It was a family business. And we all had to take part in it. And I felt like I got to take part in my mom's dream. I know some of you might be thinking, isn't that called child labor? I call it, all Vietnamese refugees, we call it free daycare. <laughs> it's a very good model, you should think about it. My mom, she was tough as nails, and she only prioritized education. She couldn't finish ninth grade, so when we got to America, she wanted us to focus on school. 
So I wanted to play trombone. I wanted to play with Todd in band class, but I was not allowed to. And I remember one morning, I woke up really early and I was gonna gather the courage to tell her I'm gonna try out for volleyball tryouts. Yeah, and um, I'm, I'm getting ready to ask her and, and I see my mom and dad in the kitchen shuffling about and they're moving about and it's weird because this is way too early for them to go to the nail salon. And I, so I say, Ma, where are you guys going? And she said, oh, oh, we're gonna be back later, it's fine. But Ma, it's 6 a.m. and you guys go to the shop at 8 a.m., so where are you guys going? We're coming home late tonight. It's fine. Well, I'm coming home late tonight, too. I'm not coming home at 3. I'm coming home at 5. I'm going to volleyball tryouts. And she said, oh, no, you're not. You have school. And I was like, I'm in the under-minute club with the multiplication tables. I'm smart. I have school handled. I want to do tryouts. And she said, no, no which means shut up. And I said, you can't tell me what to do. I'm going to volleyball tryouts, and I'm going to make the team, and I'm going to show you, and I'm going to do whatever I want, and I hate you. The car's running. They get in the car. They close the door. I slam the garage door. I hear the car roll out. I hear the door close. That's the last time I ever talked to my mom. And I come back home from school, from tryouts, and my brother says, Susan, mom's in a coma. And when I get to the hospital, I see my dad in the doorway of the room, and I walk over there, and I look at the bed, and that's not my mom. That's a body. It's a vegetable. And when I see her lying there, my legs turn into cement legs, and I can't move, and I can't say anything. And then my dad says, go. And he pushes me behind my back, and he says, go talk to her. And I said, say what to her? Just go talk to her. And it feels like ages me just trying to drag my legs over and then walk and sit down, and he goes, hold her hand. So then I pick up her hand, and her body is this weird yellow color because all the liquid of her natural body has soaked down into this little tub next to her of all this liquid, and I'm holding her hand, and it's cold. It is so cold. And the only color on her body is her red nails because she thought she'd come out of a... that day with her beautiful nails. Talk to her. So finally, when I'm ready to talk to her, I said, Ma, you always said that um, when I go to college, you'd move in with me. So can you come back so you can go to college with me? Can you come back to me? Uh. After five days in a coma, she flatlined. It's always hard when people ask me what my mom died of. It's not something that you can immediately feel sorry for, like cancer or getting hit on the sidewalk by a car. She died from plastic surgery. She went in for a tummy tuck 
the narrowing of her nostrils in a chin implant with Dr. Frank Thomas, a plastic surgeon in San Francisco who had 24 lawsuits against him, had been on probation for years, been sanctioned by the medical board two times, operated in an unaccredited facility. She walked into this clinic and she didn't know what she was walking into. Two hours in the operation, her narrowing of her nostrils goes fine, they're working on the tummy tuck, and then the siren goes off. She's lost oxygen to her brain. The nurse tells the doctor. The doctor tries to do mouth-to-mouth -mouth immediately, lifts her legs up, tries to figure things out, gives her extra medication, and nothing is happening. Usually, after not having oxygen for four minutes, you have permanent brain damage. And it was at the 14-minute mark that he calls 911. And turns out the clinic was a block and a half away from the hospital. So I'm in my late 20s now, and I'm at business school. I'm staying up late at night working on a statistics problem set, but I don't want to do it, because I keep thinking about Dr. Frank. And I keep thinking, how does a man like him, he kills somebody, he continues to have a track record, how do you just lose your license for a couple years and keep on practicing? Where's the justice in this system? I can't stop thinking about him. And I said, you know, I'm gonna Google this motherfucker. <laughs> and turns out he was still practicing. And he was still on probation. So I decided, because I was getting an MBA, I was gonna seek revenge, but with a multi-prong marketing campaign. <laughs> and I was gonna get him, because I found out a couple of things. I found out that he targeted Vietnamese women in the weekly Vietnamese newspaper. 30% of his clients were Vietnamese, and he also had volunteered his time during the Vietnam War doing reconstructive surgery. I couldn't put my finger on it. There was something really odd about this guy. But maybe instead of just the negligence on my mom, maybe there was a class action lawsuit. So I was gonna go at it that way. But then also, I was gonna have a marketing campaign where he starts to feel paranoid. I was gonna have targeted Facebook ads so that he'd click on Facebook and he'd see his face and it would say, I am watching you. And he'd look at him and be like, ah, that's me, but I'm watching myself. Who is watching me if I'm watching myself, right? And then, so that would start the paranoia. And then he would drive into work and then there would be a billboard and it would be all the women that he's hurt. And it'd say, we've got your eyes on you. And then he'd be like, what? This is so confusing. <laughs> and then I would stage protests in front of the clinic so that any new patient would know who they were going under with the knife. And my final trick in all of this is I was gonna schedule an appointment to get breast implants. And I would sit in front of him and he would be like, so how'd you hear about us? And I'd say, oh, I've done my research. <laughs> and then he'd say, well, what are you here to get done? And then I'd slowly unzip my bag and say, revenge. And then I'd pull out the subpoenas and I'd put it there and I'd slide it onto the desk. And then I'd get up and walk away very slowly, just looking at him for a long time until I closed the door. That's what I was gonna do. I was up late one night and so I was talking to my friend Amanda. She went to Harvard Law School and I was like, Amanda, I need you to do research on this, figure out how we're gonna structure the case. Tell me how this is all gonna go down. 
I was so excited about my plan. And then she said to me, Susan, he's dead. And all of a sudden, my mouth, it turned sour. It was all the sour enzymes that you get when you start to throw up and it got sour all over through my mouth and through my stomach. And then I just felt like my body just slipped out onto the floor, onto the mess of all the research of my papers and that hero that I wanted to be for my family was gone. All of that was for nothing. And I said to her, Amanda, can you sue dead people? It turns out you can't. This has been a really hard journey for me because I'm a Buddhist and I should be compassionate and have loving kindness for all beings. And I should forgive people and see the good in them. And that's been hard to do. But I think I could do that if I could humanize them or get to know them. So I sent a letter to one of his kids his son is a marriage and family therapist. And my siblings thought I was totally crazy, and they're like, what are you doing? And I said, I, I got to do what I need to do. And then three days later, I got a call. It's the youngest daughter, Megan. And she said, Susan, I got your letter, and I want you to know that I'm really, 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 really sorry. And I can't imagine this happening to my family. And I want you to know that your mom's death impacted me the most. Call me back. So I texted her. And then three days passed. And so then I called and left a voicemail. A few more days passed. And I texted her a couple more times. And that's where things stand now. My siblings think that she might have gotten spooked. Maybe she thinks I'm going to sue her or her family. So like a nerd, I looked up if I could sue her, and I can't. And so I wrote her a letter of all the statutes of limitations of why I can't do anything. I had a four-year window since 1999 to do something, and so now I can't. In the letter, I also said this. I'd just like to know more the kind of person your father was, how you felt about his work, how he felt about his work. Maybe I'm trying to make sense of what happened, or at the very least, trying to come to peace with it. By us connecting, I hope we can rewrite the narrative we pass down to future generations. That while we cannot undo the past, the human spirit is capable of forgiveness. So I'm just waiting, and I'm hoping maybe she's going to hear this recording and pick up the phone and call me.
tell him why you mad, son Cause doing it all ain't enough Cause everyone all in my cup Cause I just I still owe me bucks So I got the right to get bucked But I try not to let it build up I'm too high, I'm too better, too much So I let it go, let it go, let it go I ran into this girl, she said Why you always blame it? Why you can't just face it? Why you always gotta be so mad? Be mad, be mad, be mad. Why you always talking shit? Always be complaining Why you always gotta be? Why you always gotta be so mad? I got a lot to be mad about Be mad, be mad This is Risk this is Solange behind me now, and we just heard from Susan Liu. Oh my goodness, what a story. And you know what? She's doing a much larger, much more intricate version of that story in Seattle. Nine performances starting in February. So the show is called 140 Pounds, and you should look Susan up at susanliu.me, that's L-I-E-U dot me. Our final story on today's episode was shared by someone who had never shared a story on stage like this ever before, a brand newcomer. She shared this at our Baltimore show that we did a few months back during the Risk Book Tour. She is an artist and a massage therapist. You can find her on Instagram at Fresh Mints. Here she is now. This is Heather Minter with a story we call Losing My Religion. I was born into a church and a family based on two things, love and salvation. You see, I was born into a really conservative, evangelical, fundamentalist family. My dad was the leader of the Bible study. My uncle was the pastor of the church. Every single person I knew believed the same thing that I did. And that was pretty much based on two principles. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And they believed it so strongly that they wanted to take that out into the world, and they based that on some verses in Romans. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Romans and said, any man who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how can they call unless they believe, and how can they believe unless they hear? And how can they hear unless people go to tell them? So when I was six years old, my parents enrolled in an international mission organization. And they spent three years training. And when I was nine years old, we moved to Papua New Guinea for them to be missionaries. And they moved into a tribe in the northern part of the country, in the Sepik region. They moved in a tribe with about 100 people along the Salome River in the East Sepik province. And they left us in the loving care of other missionaries. The headquarters for the mission organization was in the highlands, in the middle part of the country, in the mountainous region. And it was right outside a major town for Papua New Guinea, outside Goroka. 
And there they left us... Uh, this headquarters was basically where all the support missionaries lived that supported the people who were out in the jungle. Um, there were pilots, there were people who gathered supplies, and then there was the school. And we had a K-12 through school, so we had teachers and we had dorm parents. So my brother was seven and I was nine, and we were placed into a dorm. And the dorms are a little different than in some places. There were family-style dorms, so one couple would take care of between 13 and 20 children. And the boys would be on one end and the girls on the other, and it was run like a family. In fact, when we first moved there, my brother thought we were supposed to start calling them mom and dad. Even though we saw my parents every few months and we got to talk to them once a week over the radio, we spent the bulk of our lives living in these dorms. And all of these missionaries had the same goal, to reach these people with the gospel of Jesus. And love and salvation was the central part of their mission. But you know, when you're living in different families, and each year we were with a different family, there were different rules, and it took a lot to get used to, to adapt to everybody's different way of doing things. And it was tough. And some people were really strict. Some people were downright brutal. By the time I was 15, I was really excited because we were going to get to move into the dorm of Uncle Brad and Aunt Beth. And we called all of the adults aunt and uncle. It created a sense of familiarity, but a little bit of respect. I was really excited because this couple was actually missionaries in the same region with my parents, and I knew them. They were really cool, and they were really fun. They were from Southern California. They really seemed to like me. And that was in stark contrast to some of the people that I'd lived with up until that point. In fact, I'd lived with one family for three years, Uncle Rob and Aunt Jane. Uncle Rob was a former boxer, and he had very specific ideas about how girls should be. And specifically, he had very specific ideas about how I should be, and he did not like me. He would say, you just need to be yourself. Why can't you just be yourself? But he would make me walk up and down the hallway and practice how I walked, because he didn't like how my heels hit the ground too hard. I wasn't feminine enough. And he really didn't like that my feet would get dirty from playing outside. So he would make me sit in the shower and he'd stand over me and he'd say, you need to scrub your feet with these wire brushes until they're just as clean and white as Aunt Jane's. But he also wanted me to be tough. And maybe it was his way of sort of preparing us for this environment that we were in. You see, the property was outside the town. It was a fenced-in property because... Where you have these towns, you have a mix of people sort of leaving village life, but not quite part of a town, and there's an increase in crime, and specifically violence against women. So as girls, we grew up understanding that, you know, violence against us was a real possibility. We didn't go near the perimeter of the property, especially at night. And I think he had his way of sort of trying to prepare us. He would stand us in the hallway, and he'd pound our stomachs to get us tough. And he'd pick me up in a wrestling hold, and he would say, listen, if anybody grabs you like this, you bite their nose or their ear until it comes off in your mouth. And that way, maybe they'll stop attacking you, but if not, you leave a mark on your attacker. And so I grew up with this mix of things, but he definitely did not like me. And he really didn't like how I sort of bristled against him when he would pin me to the ground and he'd rub his beard in my neck until it was red and raw. He was like, 
the kids all like this. It's fun. It's called a whisker burn. It's supposed to be fun. And he didn't like that I didn't like it. So when I got to move in with Brad and Beth, I was so excited because they were really cool. They were from Southern California. Like I said, they were San Diego surfer dudes. Brad was this huge guy. They had come out from the tribe to be on leadership at the headquarters and to be dorm parents. But I knew them, and I knew them well. They were just more than life. Like, what Brad lacked in maturity and experience and education, he made up for in, like, charisma and a really vibrant personality. They made things really fun for us. And they really seemed to like me. And let me tell you, at this point, at 15, I don't know how likable I was. I was so moody. And I, I would sit in the dark in my room and paint for hours and listen to music. Now, I didn't have a whole lot of access to popular music. We sometimes got American Top 40. But my friend's dad had given us his copy of R.E.M. Out of Time. And I listened to that over and over and over. And fortunately, no one noticed that there was a song on there called Losing My Religion. Because <laughs> it would have been taken away from me for sure. And you know, at that point, little seeds of doubt were getting to, to plant into my brain. And I remember thinking, like, what does it mean to lose your religion? Because everything in my life was based on this love and this salvation and reaching these people with Jesus. And my favorite thing that he would do was he would take us on these walks. And where we were situated outside the town, like I said, there was a little bit of unsafety outside of the perimeter of this property. And women or girls could not leave without an adult man with them. But he would take us on these walks at night. And it was so exhilarating. Not just to leave the property, but to get to go at night. And we'd walk up this path. And where we were situated on this mountain, we were sort of toward the top of our section of the mountain. And there was a plateau at the top. And you'd walk along this gravel path up to the top and reach this plateau. And you'd pass little villages on the way. It's dark. And you're in a little huddle. And you've got your flashlights. And in the mountains, you know, the wind can really pick up at night. And you'd hear the wind blowing through the grass and the trees. And it was so exhilarating. And you'd make your way up this gravel path all together. And when you'd reach the top, you'd stand there. And that wind would just blow right through you. And for that little time, I wasn't this little girl with all these things happening and all these rules and restrictions. And I I wasn't battling anything. I was just standing on the top of a mountain with the wind just blowing through me, alive. I loved those walks. And I remember one walk in particular. It was, you know, a regular school night, and he was going to take us on this walk. And it was really cool because it was actually mostly just the teenage girls from the dorm. The teenage boys weren't going to go with us for some reason, and it was some of the younger boys. And I remember specifically my little brother was going with us, and he had a new book light that he was going to use as a flashlight. And he was really excited about that. And so we're walking, and we're, we leave the property, you know, go through the fence, and we're walking up this gravel path. And it's really particularly fun because as girls you know we didn't get to do things like this very much and we just have Uncle Brad with us and a group of girls and some younger boys and walking along and I remember there was no moon that night it was very dark and so we had our flashlights and all you see you know are your feet in front of you and the gravel and you're feeling the wind we're making our way up this path and there's this turn you make as you're coming up and then you're going to make your way up to this plateau and as we're coming around the corner I look up and I see shadows. 
And by the time my brain is processing this, I hear screaming. And all around us, these village men are coming running at us, screaming and hollering. And there's a certain way that men uh, initiate tribal warfare in New Guinea where they chant and scream and yell and sort of pound their bodies against each other. And they're doing this. And they've got headdresses and weapons. And they're, they're circling us. And they're pounding against us. And I'm t- absolutely terrified. And I have no idea what to do. And I'm trying to figure out, I'm trying to remember, what am I supposed to do in the circumstance? And of course, all that is just gone, and all I'm doing is the one thing I know how to do, and that's that I'm praying, dear God, dear Jesus, please don't let them rape me. Let them kill me, but not rape me. Please, dear God, please don't let them rape me. And I'm so confused, and I'm looked down, my brother's taking his shoes off, and I can't figure out why, and I'm looking at everybody's faces, and I'm trying to figure out what to do. And it's really dark, so I think maybe I can make a run for it, you know? Maybe I can run off into the brush, but then I think, no, no, that's where they'll get me. They're going to pin me to the ground, and they're going to rape me, and they're going to murder me, and that'll be the end, and no one will even hear me cry. And I'm thinking, okay, so the best thing is just to stay with the group, stay with the group. And I'm totally terrified, and while I'm in the midst of all this confusion, I see coming from the shadows my dorm brothers. And they're laughing. I'm so confused. Why aren't they coming to our rescue? Or why aren't they scared? And then they say, ah, it was great. You guys were so scared. We were just playing a joke. We were just playing a joke. And I was just so confused. And I'm shaking. I'm looking at Uncle Brad. But he's laughing. Because to come to find out, he had asked the boys to just jump out and scare us. They had, because they could leave the property, had gone to the local villages where they had friends and gathered them up and made headdresses and fake weapons. They really wanted to make it realistic. And we're standing there and I'm trying to process this. And meanwhile, my brother's trying to put his shoes back on and he's so angry because his book light got smashed in the chaos. And I don't remember the walk back, you know. But I remember lying in bed and not being able to sleep. And I remember turning the light on and my dorm sisters all gathering around and saying, did you think you were going to get raped? Yeah, me too. Yeah, I thought so too. I was so, I was so scared. And we didn't know what to do because Uncle Brad was in charge of everything. There was no one to tell. We knew not to tell our parents and nothing would come of it. And we didn't want to harm the work that they were doing in the tribe. So, you know, we comforted each other. We did what we normally did, and we gave each other back rubs, and we settled ourselves down, and we went to sleep. And the next day at school, the boys <laughs> thought it was hilarious, and they played such a great joke on us. And we were so stupid for thinking it was a real attack, because that's not how it would have gone. And I remember just feeling so betrayed and angry. You're my brothers and my friends. Well, they couldn't get it, you know. And I didn't learn a whole lot about Jesus that night. And Jesus eventually sort of disappeared from my life altogether. But I learned a little about love, and I learned a little about salvation. And I learned that it's not going to come from the people you expect it to come from. It's not going to come from your parents and these people in authority. It's not going to come from stupid boys (laughs) scaring you in the night. But you know where it did come from? It came from that little bedroom and my dorm sisters and back robes before bed. And that's still where it comes from, from my sisters and my friends. Thank you.
My soul is a weary. My soul is a weary. My soul is a weary. I said my soul is a weary now. Mm. My soul is a weary and beaten down from all my misery. Yeah. Oh Lord, who will comfort me? My soul is a weary and beaten down from all my misery. Yeah. Oh Lord, who will comfort me? They love me. That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Melody Gardot behind me now, and we just heard from Heather Minter. Our stories this week were edited by Jeff Barr and Marty Garcia. And to keep up with all our live shows, to find out where Risk is appearing live next, don't forget to check risk-show.com slash tour. And if you don't already know, Risk also has a sister company. It's called The Story Studio. At thestorystudio.org, we teach people storytelling skills uh, one-on-one over Skype or in-person workshops in groups in Los Angeles, Minneapolis, and New York, and entire courses that you can download as video courses and take at your own pace in your own time. Not to mention the corporate workshops that we teach to clients like Google and Pfizer and Citibank. That is all to be found at thestorystudio.org. Folks, today's the day, and (laughs) here goes our 10th year of doing this. Take a risk. Risk boom.